If I tell all the kids in my class, in my new class, hey guys, nice to meet you. I know you don't know me. Come to my house and my mom, get, my mom makes bomb diggity brownies. We'll hang out. So if the original reason why they came to this is the brownies, but once they got to know you and you know played video games with you, they became valid friends. That's what we're talking about in the Mishnah. Hello everybody, welcome into the Zal. My name is David Grossbaum, and on Shabbat, the only thing that I carry is a grudge. Joined, joining me today is my dear friend and study partner, Adam Levinson. Well, the only thing I carry on a Shabbat is everything. I'll carry anything. I'll carry <laughs> anything. <laughs> Besides for uh, Second Amendment rights, apparently. You won't carry that. No, no carry. I carry the right. I just don't act on it. <laughs> Uh, today, we'll be discussing, among other things, the nature of mentorship in a increasingly cynical world. Exciting. Let's do it. Use that for yourself. So when the word mentor immediately to, I guess, regular people, people that consider themselves normal, has immediately awkward connotations. Is that correct? I'm like, I'm coming from the rabbinic standpoint, but you're normal. So is that uh, correct? Well, you say, hey, mentor, do, do you get like that normal? cult energy? What is normal? Um, I don't think so, honestly. I think especially in the professional world, people talk about having a mentor, having a role model, how important that is. But when someone uses the term mentor, I don't know, the energy that I get is like, here is somebody that you trust enough to follow basically their every directive. No, I don't think so. I mean, people talk about an advisor and it's just somebody that can guide you. I, I do think I've noticed in the corporate world, more and more people talking about their mentor in a way that I, I thought was surprising. It could be somebody that's just three, four years above them, you know, as a lawyer or in consulting and they say, well, this is my mentor. And um, I don't, you know, I don't know how much that role becomes uh, just somebody that you can turn to to give you the answers about everything. And as opposed to somebody that, you know, you just know they've been, you know, around the block a few more times and you take their advice a little better. You know, now that you say it like that, I kind of get the sense of fluffy networking. Does that make sense? Like when someone, when a business person says like, hey, this is my mentor, it's more like, here's a guy that will allow me to get ahead in the business world. So it's kind of tit for tat type. Is that true or wrong? I'm sure it could be, but I, I don't get that negative connotation. I just, I just looked it up uh, from French, from Latin, from Greek mentor, the name of the advisor of the young Telemachus and Homer's Odyssey. It was just a guy's name an advisor type, you know, somebody to give you a couple, a little bit of guidance along the way and maybe immortalize you in one of the most famous works of literature of all time. Uh, that's a good mentor. You know, if they can, if they can squeeze you in like that, that's pretty good. You know, that's good for your LinkedIn. I'm in the, you know, I'm in the odyssey. What's up with you? Huh? Checkmate. <laughs> Checkmate. Pay me. So even within Jewish context, 
sometimes you'll see that the, and we'll get to this a bit later, but sometimes you'll see that when seeking a mentor, you should see him as a quote, Malach Elohim Tzvakot, which means like an actual angel of God. That's how, that's the viewpoint with which you should see your mentor, which oh, obviously wow. intensifies it um, to the point where it's like, oh, it's not just like, oh, he technically has a bit more information than me or technically has a bit more experience than me. It's more that his character is a desirable thing to reflect. Like I should pursue his character or at least not, ne not necessarily to reflect his character, but to at least trust it. Like there's that integrity there, I think. Mm -hmm. That is, I mean, that is very, very intense um, because I think what we always come down to is how critical to be of a certain concept. You get an idea, how much do you push back against it? And if this is about finding somebody that can um relieve you of some of that impulse to push back that's a pretty big thing to say especially mm. in judaism where kind of we're sort of argumentative about everything right off the bat yeah that makes a lot of sense what you're saying i guess like if i had to boil down what you just said there's a apparently a distinction between a regular teacher which pushback is i guess healthy and part of the understanding process and a mentor and those things shouldn't be conflated the teacher teaches you and technically if somebody only knows aleph of the whole Aleph bet and has pretty bad character, you could still learn Aleph from him, even though his knowledge is very limited. If you, if he happens to have a piece of knowledge that you don't possess, mm. whereas in mentorship, if his character is not, you know, attractive, then it just wouldn't be the same application. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. That's like me giving directions in New York. Somebody goes, which way is uptown? I go, is that way? They go, how do I where's this restaurant? I go, you're on, you're on your own. Right. But I would be, I would be fantastic with uh, New York geography if it wasn't for Broadway. I feel like Broadway was just to say, like, you've been here for two, three years. That's mm -hmm. not enough. You know, we're going to give you this Broadway curveball, mm -hmm. literal curveball. And um, <laughs> and then you won't have it unless you've been there for like 20 years until you unless you've been in the financial district for 20 years. A teacher knows it goes diagonally. Uh, uh, a mentor knows if you're east of 6th Ave, you wow. know. Wow. We don't need right. the rest of the episode. All right. Yeah, Thanks like, for tuning in. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Banana Shevitz. Have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> we do actually have a new sponsor. I should, I should tell you, we have one more. It's another exciting day at the Zoll. What are we going to do with all of this money, Adam? Well, I didn't say how much they're actually sponsoring. Oh, okay. They're just giving us case, <laughs> cases of Banana Shevitz's are going to arrive at Chabad of Indiana. Uh, this episode is brought to you in part by It'll Go Bad Tomorrow. A new meal prep service made by Jewish mothers delivered straight to your door along with your mother. The meal certainly will not go bad tomorrow, but you'll eat it just to get your mother to stop guilting you. Where other meal delivery companies try to reduce the stress of cooking, we'll increase the stress, guilt, and agitation, helping you burn calories while you eat. Try, it'll go bad tomorrow. It'll go bad tomorrow. It won't, but okay, fine. I'll eat it. <laughs> Wow, stellar. It, it's like, mom, I understand the concept of soup. It's going to be fine on Thursday. The pear, it's hitting its prime. Nobody knows, mom, when a pear is ripe. Nobody knows. <laughs> you may be a teacher. You're not a mentor about pears. <laughs> you know, I feel like my dad is that one in my family. No, my dad isn't even that. He will hold on to leftovers forever. 
like just not let it go. He chucks it in the freezer and he'll, he'll slowly sneak it into a meal. So it'll be 95% fresh, but then there'll be like one side that he injected and it's just from two years ago. See, this is both version, Jewish versions of, of waste, not want, not save all the food. Absolutely. Your dad is doing things in a relatively reasonable way. The idea of just saying, you got to eat this now. I don't care if you've had six meals today. That's going in you. And your dad in this scheme? Less, less so. It really comes from my mother. And I, I think that we're a progressive family and the gender roles are not defined the way they were when they grew up. And yet it is the Jewish mother going, you better eat this. Mm-hmm. You better eat this or else. Yo, yo. All right. Um, let's jump into it. So we fortunately today we'll be learning something that does appear in Safaria. It's a little bit less off the beaten track. It's from the book of Perkeva, which is known as Ethics of Our Fathers in English. Um, very much a fundamental book within Jewish literature and Jewish tradition. It's actually Mishnaic. It's from the Mishnah time period, which is around 1800 years ago. And surprisingly, when people study Perkeavot, it seems so, I'm not going to use the term progressive, but it seems so conducive for bumper stickers, mm-hmm. like so modern. So like, hey, here's a one-liner that's really going to make your day, you know? And and therefore, it's assumed that it's much newer of a text than it actually is. Uh, you know, I would, if you read this for the at face value, you'd guess maybe 500, 400, 300 years old, but it's 1800 years old. It's extremely uh, a primary source. Um, and it's a Mishnah, which uh, has all the credence, you know, of, of any book within Judaism. So even though, sorry, even though it seems quite ambiguous and like not two feet on the ground, don't allow yourself when reading it to say like, oh, this jo- this book is clearly not the most respected book within Judaism. It's just like a, a book of one-liners. That's not so whatsoever. Perkevot is very much um, appreciated and um, respected. Can you explain exactly what a Mishnah is in relation to other parts of the Talmud that we're looking at? Because it's a word that I've heard a ton before, and I think I've half understood what it really refers to and very very short when the torah was given 3333 years ago the torah was given given as a written document that's the five books of moses that's what we know as the torah the bible but with it came an interpretation of how to understand that text and that was transmitted verbally or orally and the reason why not everything was written and certain things were transmitted verbally uh, is a discussion for another day, but there's varying reasons. But let's just take that at face value that it was passed down verbally. And then fast forward maybe 1500 years later, uh, the Jewish people were beginning to be exiled more and more frequently and in harsher and harsher settings. So Rabbi Yehuda Nasi felt that despite their borderline being a prohibition against taking things which were verbally transmitted and having that verbal tradition being strictly verbal, despite all of that, he felt that if he wouldn't transcribe it, if he wouldn't write it down, it would be lost. Um, and so he began compiling the Mishnah, which is a combination of the oral tradition and the debates regarding the oral tradition. And uh, he thought that, oh, that would be enough. It's written borderline in cliff notes format. It's very, very short. 
you know, everything's concise and in a nutshell. And he figured that, oh, these cliff notes will be enough to spring the memories of anyone that had any interest in the verbal tradition. But because exiles got worse and worse, and some say our minds got less and less impressive or less and less focused, um, it wasn't enough. And the cliff notes weren't enough. And then came the next generation known as the Talmud or more specifically as the Gemara, which uh, analyzed those texts even further and specified even more the debates and the details. And then people thought, okay, that's enough. That's enough writing for us Jews. Everything else can remain oral and verbal. And the next generation needed more interpretation and the next generation needed more interpretation. And until this very day, people are still writing different texts trying to understand uh, the verbal tradition, the oral tradition. Yeah, I think you did mention this another week and this just goes to show I need a a teacher who does repeat things a few <laughs> times. I don't know where that is in the Talmud, but. Well, hopefully our audience is growing. So maybe we should check in about that explanation every couple of episodes. And it's so, and you, you really should stop me uh, whenever there's a potential ambiguity because, you know, I grew up with this and I was in yeshiva for many, many years. So you, you grow your own lexicon and it could be quite distant from just the regular person's mind. So if I accidentally or intentionally use something that's clearly part of the nomenclature that's unknown, you know, stop me and ask me to explain. Okay. So when you say lexicon, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know that's one of the Avengers. <laughs> okay. Um, chapter one, Mishnah number six. So again, this will touch upon topics of mentorship along with other topics as well. We'll set the link in the description of the podcast. Yeshua ben Pracha Yeshua son of Pracha and Nitai from the village of Arbel received from the previous men mentioned in Pirkei Avot. Yeshua ben Pracha Omer, Yeshua the son of Pracha says, Asei l'cha rav, make for yourself a mentor. Ukne l'cha and literally this means buy a friend, purchase a friend. And judge every person favorably. Judge every person favorably. Okay, so let's jump into the commentary. Perkevat, again, like we said, is quite seminal. So there's many, many commentaries, and we'll be touching on just a handful of them today. Um, I'm, no, I'm no expert of Hebrew grammar, but apparently, according to the grammaticians, grammaticians? Grammarians. Grammarians. Thank you for that. Um, sounds like it sounds like a village in Judea. <laughs> it is from the village of Grammaria. Really serious about semicolons. <laughs> um, the, the term make for yourself a mentor makes it seem like it's being forced. In other words, force upon yourself a mentor. And the commentaries ask, why must it be forced? And the explanation is that oftentimes... Uh, people have enough self-esteem or perhaps arrogance and think that uh, either they know everything or that there's no one that can teach them anything. Mm. And and that sounds pretty haughty and ominous, but it's really like a very practical. You know what I mean? So let's say, for example, if you want to take IQ tests, right? And let's say, Adam, you have a higher IQ than me. And then Sarah has a higher IQ than you. And then Deborah has a higher IQ than her. And then, you know, Bobby has a higher IQ than him. Boop, 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 boop. And you're at the top of the pyramid. And he, this dude, you know, Vincenzo has the highest IQ in the world, right? So from an objective IQ standpoint, he's the smartest guy. So maybe, yeah, the rest of us can use someone that's higher on the totem pole as a mentor, but maybe Vincenzo, 
shouldn't have a mentor because he's apparently and objectively the most, you know, the most intelligent. Or that's one, you know, extreme example. But use another example. Use music, you know. He's better than him. She's better than him. Boop, 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 boop. And then this guy's number one. So clearly everyone else needs a mentor just to keep on reaching higher and higher. And then the guy that's number one, even if he could improve, there's no one that could teach him, right? So the, so he the, the he or she on top of the, of the pyramid perhaps doesn't need a mentor. That's what one can think. And it's a reasonable thought. Uh, objectively, it's a reasonable thought. It might be a bit arrogant for someone to think that they're the top of that pyramid, but from an objective standpoint, it makes sense that, yeah, whoever that person is on top of the pyramid, perhaps they don't need a mentor. Hmm. And that's what this Mishnah is saying that, no, force yourself a mentor, even if you're perhaps going to someone that you consider less intelligent than you or less emotionally intelligent than you or less, you know, developed in the music uh, that you study or in the art that you practice or in soccer or whatever you, you're trying to improve in. Um the reason why you seek a mentor isn't because they're necessarily better or smarter. The reason why you seek a mentor is because they are ob objective. They're going through things, you're going through things that they're not. So therefore you can easily get lost in the clouds of your own biases or your own emotions and not judge the situation clear eyed. And that's where a mentor comes in and they could tell you and point to you the, the correct path to take. I often think about sports coaches, you know, and what exactly they're offering. And maybe they were a champion in their era, or maybe they never got to the level. Most of them don't say, you know, Roger Federer or somebody like that. Nobody achieved as much. And yet he has a coach. And I, I always think about, well, what exactly are they focusing on? What is it that that champion needs in order to stay improving, progressing? It's exactly the point. So it could be a combination of A, accept the truth, even if the person isn't good at that truth. That's a Jewish standard. But over here, it's even deeper than that. It's just, he may not know the truth as well as you do, but for some reason, that truth could be clouded in your own mind because you're experiencing it and you're, you're hot in the moment. Could a, could a mentor or a teacher be somebody that teaches by counterexample? And I don't just mean, you know, your parent who says, do what I say and not what I do. And they go outside for a cigarette and they don't say, you know, they say don't smoke. But even like actually choosing somebody who really, really, really is doing not what you want to do. And you say, okay, whatever they do, I'm going to really think about that. And probably do the opposite. The opposite. Um, I wouldn't call it a mentor, but there, we believe that everything can be uh, learned from with a lesson. You could study a lesson from anything, but I just wouldn't use the word mentor. The classic line, hopefully we don't have any uh, misnagdish listeners that are offended by this. You know, I, I'm saying it tongue in cheek, but the line among Hasidim, among like, you know, the Hasidic Jews was frega misnagid and tufa which means ask a misnagid and do the opposite. That, Misnagid is those. What is that literally? Those are the original opposers to Hasidism. They're observant Orthodox Jews. They still have a few of the hardcore last Mohicans today that objectively oppose to Hasidism, but for all intents and purposes, there's no real Misnagdim today. But like 400 years ago, when Hasidism was founded by the Baal Shem Tev in the next, let's say, 100 years, it was really intense opposition to Hasidism. There's a whole history, and we'll touch upon this many, many times in future podcasts. But in short, they, done, they, they didn't like Hasidim. So the Hasidim would always say, ask their opinion and then do the opposite. Okay. Pretty clear. Another example would be um, 
I can't, don't ask me to list them all, but there was a very famous chassid who I don't want to use the wrong name because I don't remember who it is. But he said from a, from a thief, you can learn seven things. That's what he would always say. And like, it, and one of them wasn't not to be a thief. That wasn't one of them. It would be um, uh, like stealth, persistence, um, you know, not seeking attention. Those are three. Um, there's, a, there's a few others, but four others, I guess. But that would be another example. So these things are lessons that you could derive from people that are on the negative. But the term mentor, I think, is a stretch. Sure. Yeah. Well, even something about that is a nice way of holding back from judging people in these totally binary ways of saying this person is really good and this person is really bad. I mean, if there's something that you can learn from everybody, then there's this idea at least that there's a commonality, there's some baseline commonality or some overlaps between people that you might ostracize entirely and people that you say, oh, these are great people. Yeah. Blurs that, blurs that boundary in a way that, that seems nice to me. Yeah. With that thief example. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. So here we are with a mentor. One more commentary, I think for now, and it says, make for yourself mentor in the singular. But if you, I, I have to find where it says it. Um, oh yeah. And tracte Avodazara in the Talmud later on, it says that make for yourself, the quote is make for yourself mentors in the plural and the commentary is here, the foremost commentary, the Bartonora wonders about this. Uh, what is it? Sing are you looking for one mentor? Or are you looking for many mentors? What's going on? So he makes the following uh, distinction. And he says that when you're looking for many mentors, that's for general inspiration. General inspiration. But when you're looking for practical guidance, practical guidance requires one mentor. You can't afford to have mixed messages when it comes to the practical. Mm. So that's an interesting discrepancy. When we compare Mishnah number, we're in the middle of Mishnah number six. When we compare six to 16, we touch on a similar concept, but it's, it's different. But over here, it's saying, if someone's saying yes, another guy's saying no, you can't have both of those people as mentors. It just doesn't work. But if someone says, you know, pursue intelligence, another person says pursue emotional. So it's not yes and not the other, but it's more yes and, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, in those cases, yeah, take as, many, take as many mentors as you can, you know just grab them because they're all going to be improving your character and your life um, in different ways. And you might as well diversify. It's funny. And I think this is something that we will always come up against this idea that there are these multiple sources and the response is never, eh, maybe one of the times it was a typo. That is never the answer, right? It's always, well, hold on. How do we reconcile one with the other? Um, yes. For the for most primary sources, very infrequently will he say, "Oh, that's a typo," or "There's a mixed-up version." There are like much more nuanced and tiny examples where people will occasionally use the crutch to say, "Oh, this is a typo," or "This was a a faulty version," or whatnot. And it's honestly in yeshivas. This is a a tangent, but in yeshivas, those people typically are scoffed at. Because it's like, oh, you can't figure out this dilemma. All right, just make a nice little quick edit, you know, editing into the text that's troublesome, and then boom, you fix it. That's like, oh, that's cheap. That's a crutch, you know. So like, we we do our best not to do that, especially because we believe in the validity of the versions, but especially because it's just it's almost lazy. Mm -hmm. Okay, but good question. Yeah, great question. Okay, fine. So let's go to the next. We're still in the middle of number six, but it said, it said, buy a friend, purchase a friend, if you remember we just read that. What does it mean to purchase a friend? 
So the commentaries explain right off the bat that if the friend is only being your friend because you're paying him a monthly stipend, then obviously we're not talking about that. That's just a fake friend. What we're talking about is over here is where in order to get that friend through the door in the first place, just that you have the opportunity to impress him enough that he'd want to be a friend with you. That's where we say, be open to payment. So for example, I'm a new kid in the fourth grade. I just switched schools and I don't know anybody. If I tell all the kids in my class in my new class, hey guys, nice to meet you. I know you don't know me. Come to my house and my mom, get, my mom makes bomb diggity brownies um, and we'll hang out, we'll hang out, right? So if the original reason why they came to this is the brownies, but once they got to know you and you know played video games with you, they became valid friends. That's what we're talking about in the Mishnah. But if the only reason they're coming out coming out to your house each time for the next, you know, eight years through high school. It's just because did your mom make brownies? Oh, she didn't. All right, I'm out. Then you, then we're not talking about those types of friends. That's just pure uh, compensation. You know, it's not, it's not what we're discussing here, Hmm. but I guess just that initial meeting, you should be open to payment, to, to making a friend via payments. You know, there's different types of currencies. It could be money or it could be brownies. It could be anything. Some kind of, yeah, right. Some kind of gift. And it's interesting because like, I feel like I can't speak for other religions, but even within Judaism, you don't find as much popularly an emphasis religiously on the concept of friendship. You know, it's either do good to people or do good to God, but it's not like, hey, this relationship development with Mr. A, B, or C will really enhance your life. It's part of the religion also. Um, I feel like it's an underrated aspect. Yeah, completely. I mean, that seems to me like a massive thing to learn from, especially when we talk about love between people and that being a useful metaphor towards understanding a really deep connection that could go in any direction towards God, towards humanity, towards whatever. And and that can take so many different forms that it seems like friendship would be a, would be a really fruitful one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder why that is. You know, I feel like either because it's so commonplace that people just take it for granted and like, oh, that's just what I do, but it's not part of my religion. Or maybe because it's, maybe it just seems so selfish that people want to assume that it's not a religious spiritual experience. Maybe. Hmm. I just, I'm trying to figure out why it didn't really take off. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I'm remembering your bachelor party. I think that probably was near a religious experience, or at least (laughs) I, I, you know, I woke up from a trance. So (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Can we say that story? Uh, maybe, maybe later. Tune in. Uh, <laughs> tune in next time to hear about how we got drunk at a graveyard. Okay. And we're going to save it for when our lawyers tell us that it's not illegal. <laughs> like that's what actually goes on behind that tent. <laughs> Everybody knows, man. It's a cemetery. Okay. Last thing, number six. And judge every person favorably. So it seems pretty straightforward, but the commentaries get busy with this one too. And they say, you know, usually when the term judge people favorably is used, they, they really mean it as judge everyone fairly, not as favorably. So let's say, for example, um, mm. I see someone struggling with alcoholism, right? So to judge someone fairly would mean, oh, you know, you don't know what he went through. You don't know 
um, his upbringing. You don't know his genetic disposition for alcoholism, et cetera, et cetera. That would be a fair way of looking at it. Favorably means that I'm going to actually look at him better because he's struggling with this thing. There's, there's, there's like an addition to my, mm. to my viewpoint of him. And, and that's like the weirdest thing ever. Judge everyone favorably makes no sense. Fairness is beautiful, but favorably he should get more kudos because he's struggling with whatever he's struggling. Um, I mean, I, I see those as pretty similar in that one of them is don't assume the worst. And one of them is kind of assume the best, which, you know, they can go both ways. It's like somebody is tailgating you on road rage or whatever. Somebody shouts at you on the street and you go, look, I don't know what's going on in their day. Mm -hmm. And on the one level, fairly, maybe you let it roll off your back. You go, Hey, whatever. And maybe on the other one, you do imagine, man, like, what if they're going through some real shit, you know? What if somebody in their family died? What if, you know, they just mm -hmm. can't think about other things? And you sort of end up in the same place. He's taking his that. wife to the hospital, whatever. Exactly, exactly. And so maybe you just you just hold back from judgment is kind of the end of the... I hear that. That's a, you know, honestly, that's a good answer. And perhaps commentaries take that path because yours is much more straightforward than the one I'm about to say, even though what I'm about to say is still beautiful. But... For the listener, know that the Torah is multifaceted, and therefore, when it comes to law, there's one Jewish law. But when it comes to understanding the meanings of things, it's the, the expression is shivim panim la Torah, which means there's 70 faces to the Torah, which means every brain type, I don't think it's limited to 70, it's just an expression, but it means every brain type has a valid way of looking at the Torah and analyzing it, making meaning. And Adam just offered a super straightforward and simple explanation. And it's probably legit. Like there's probably absolute truth to it. Well, if there's um, 70 of something, I'm lucky if I get the partly one, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, the one that, the one I'm about to share is slightly more um, mystical if I could use that term without sounding corny. Okay. Um, it's that there's an, in, in the Talmud, it says, and this is Aramaic, lafum gamla shikma, which means according to the camel, that's its load. So if you would have a camel and you know that it can only carry 500 pounds, but let's say you needed a thousand pounds of merchandise to be brought from point A to point B, it would never dawn on you to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to rush. Let me break my camel's back for the sake of making one trip. Mm -hmm. You would make two trips and say, I don't care uh, that I need to do this quickly. It doesn't matter um, because the more important thing is I want to use this camel in the future. And if I pound all 1000 pounds onto the camel's back, it'll be broken. Right. So that would, that's the truth. If you or, or I would be camel drivers that we wouldn't overload our camel. And that's a metaphor for God as well. That whenever God burdens us with a challenge that we were struggling to overcome, we believe as Jews that the person that's struggling with that challenge has the spiritual ability to overcome it. They have, uh, just like you wouldn't overload your camel with something it can't handle, so too God doesn't overload a human with a challenge that it can't overcome. Now, that sounds very inspirational first of all just in parentheses because it's the knowledge that everything could be could be dealt with i don't know if it's going to be dealt with in the way that each of us envision you know but it, it could be overcome in a wholesome way there's something extremely socialist we might call it or socialistic or you know with the society in mind I, there's that theory often quote from Marx from each according to his ability to each according to his needs 
And that sounds like, look, your camel can't hold it. So what are your needs? And, or if your camel can't carry it, what is your ability? So take that into account. And that seems like a very mindful way of understanding people's place in a larger group. Adaptive. Adaptive and not just pull yourself up from your bootstraps, which is physically impossible. You cannot stand on your own hands. Uh, but it's, it's a very different approach than a sort of individualistic one. I do hear what you're saying. It's the preparedness to recognize that some people's burdens are different than other people's burdens and there's no one size fit all. Completely. All. Yeah. Either way. So I was going with, with this to say that the same is true with, with just like the camel said so to God, there's no challenge that can't be overcome that if it was given to you by God, clearly you could overcome it. So having said that, now let's get back to our Mishnah. When I see someone, what was our example? Alcoholism. When I see someone struggling with something that I don't struggle with, that proves to me that he possesses or she possesses a spiritual potential that I don't have. Because if I did have that muscle, so to speak, then God would have burdened me with it and then I would have over, overcome it, right? From the fact that he has a challenge that I don't have, apparently he has a muscle that I don't have too, a spiritual muscle, you know, a willpower muscle that I don't have either. So therefore, when you see someone struggling with something, obviously you shouldn't push it under the rug and, you know, put your head in the sand and pretend like it doesn't need to be dealt with, obviously. But we're saying as far as your spiritual respect for the person, as far as how much you should still see them as a person with unique, you know, abilities, this should enhance that viewpoint. You should be looking at him with more respect as a result of his spiritual muscle that you just learned about from studying his physical struggle. Okay. So beautiful, theoretically, super hard to live by, I should say. <laughs> Can you imagine every single time someone was an asshole, you were like, I'm going to respect you more for that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, but just to, to take it back. So in, in chapter, in Mishnah number six, we discussed mentorship, how it needs to be forced and that um, for the practical, you should seek a coherent message and you're seeking in the mentor objectivity. We spoke about friendship and how the, you should even be prepared to buy a friend if need be. And we spoke about being respectful toward people that struggle with things that you don't struggle with. This podcast continues to be brought to you by Banana Shevitz. Does your kiddish wine not have enough potassium? Try Banana Shevitz, uh, recommended by zero out of five dentists. Banana Shevitz, monkeys like it. So why shouldn't you? And as always, by Schmendel's herring deodorant, using technology from our time in ancient Egypt to turn your pickled herring into an aerosol spray. It'll get in your nose, but not in your eyes. Make a good impression on that first J-date. Schmendel's, better to smell like a fish than like a man. Now we're going to jump to Mishnah number 16. Um, it's further in the chapter, and you could find it on Safari as well. It's chapter one, Mishnah 16. And it has three of the same exact words, but with the commentaries, it means something uh, almost completely different. Number 16, Rabbi Gamliel Haya Omer, Rabbi Gamliel would say, make or force for yourself a, in this case, it means, according to most commentaries, a rabbi. Much more practical and um, literal translation of the word rav. And but I'll explain in a moment. Let's keep on reading. The histalic menasafik, thereby 
removing yourself from all doubt. And you won't excessively tithe based on estimates. That's the literal translation. So let's explain very quickly. So in Judaism, we believe that one should tithe, one should give charity of 10% of their income. A whole nother discussion, very, very fun, very, very interesting, very, very, um, I'd say telling, um, because you know, I, I, my observant friends, they're not making a ton of money necessarily, but because everyone's giving 10%, they're insanely charitable if you think about it. And then when I moved to Indiana and um, people are much less observant, to have a Jew part with $18, they feel like they, they came in and they're like giving millions of dollars to the children. It's amazing to how little charity is a part of the common culture where when it is given, they, they're expecting like gold medals. Whereas my friends who are like borderline on food stamps, they're giving, you know, $18 on the hour, like on the daily for sure. You know, it's just because tithing is much more commonplace. Either way, that's in parentheses. But so tithing is, um, is part of Jewish law. You give 10% of your income to charity and um, it, you need a good accountant. Because let's say it's not so clear cut that you made, let's say, $100,000 this year, and that would be easy math. You give $10,000 $10, to charity. Let's say some places are invested in stock, and then other places were uh, sent into my business, and then I have various income streams, and dot, 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 dot. You need a good accountant and a good rabbi to calculate the total income of the year and to give tithes accordingly. Now, let's say I know for sure that I made less than $100,000 this year. I don't know the exact number, but let's say I know for sure that I gave less than $100,000, that I made less than $100,000 this year. Can I say, let me just give $10,000 to charity and I know for sure I'm giving more than I owe. Would that be a valid calculation? So at first glance, you would say yes, because he's definitely giving more than he has to. So why should we get into the nitty gritty of, of calculating the exact amount that he earned? And therefore, instead of giving, you know, $10,000 to charity, he'll, he'll, you know, do the math and figure out that he needs to give $9,400 to charity. What's the downside of giving more than you have to, to the poor? I don't know. So, so what the mission is saying is no, first of all, don't do that. We'll get into the why in a moment. The mission is saying, do not do that. Make for yourself a rabbi. Make find for yourself an expert rabbi that could calculate these things and give you the exact answer of how much you owe and don't give more. Um, and this is this is true here, but it's true in so many. They give a very vivid example, but there's it's true every day. Like how many times a day do we say, you know what? I don't know if this is good or bad, either morally or spiritually or health wise or in taxes or anything. We say, oh, I don't know if this is good or bad. I'm just going to err on the side of caution and um, don't engage in whatever I was about to engage in just to be safe. You know, let's say I'm in, I'm traveling and I see a, a box of Pringles and I don't see a kosher label on the Pringles, right? So I could either say I have one side of me says there's no kosher label, so let it be not kosher. The other side of me says, wait a second, in America, I eat Pringles all the time because they do have a kosher label, right? Should I be strict on myself and say like, oh, no eating Pringles? Or I could do my research, call my rabbi, have him call the rabbi you know, in the country and find out exactly if the Pringles here is manufactured in the same plant the Pringles are in America, whatever, and therefore they're kosher, right? So I would be tempted to say, eh, screw it. I don't need the Pringles. I'm not interested in doing all the homework. I'll just be stricter on myself and err on the side of caution. 
right? Um, but the but the Mishnah is saying, no, 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 do the research and perhaps you don't have to be as strict on yourself. This sounds like a real story that you went through. Uh, all, all the time. I did a lot of traveling <laughs> when I was single and there was a lot of unlabeled Pringles. I have to say that's a perfect, <laughs> perfect call by you. Um, or health, you know, let's say you are freaking gluten-free, right? And you know that you react poorly to this or that. And then you, your friend brings to the office some super funky chip and it's, it's made by some grain, but it's a really unique grain, right? So you can either just say, I won't eat anything. That's the easy cop out. Or you can say, let me call my doctor. Let me call this professional. Let me Google it, da, 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 da. And then maybe I could learn that I actually could eat it. Maybe I'll learn that I can't eat it, but um, I, should I do the research? And the question is, should one do the research or should just they should they just err on the side of caution and just not partake whatsoever? So here tithing is really just an example. Exactly. Um, and the mission is saying, no, 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 no. Do that research, find out the right answer, and don't just be strict on yourself unnecessarily. So so why not? What's the downside? This is an interesting discussion. What's the downside of being just more strict on myself and not doing the research? Okay. So there's a few commentaries over here. One says, why? In other words, life is short. And if something potentially could be kosher or if you're gluten-free and something potentially could be added to the list of things that you could eat, why? Why, you know, roll up your sleeves, don't be lazy and make your life a little better. That's interpretation number one. Explanation number two, and this is a little bit deeper, if I had to sum it up in a one-liner, it's it better it be real than it be more. And this is true. That, that line is relevant to tithing. But it's more better you be invested in the giving of, let's say, in my example, $9,400 instead of the $10,000. But you were invested and you did the research and you cared about it. Then give the dismissive way of just saying, oh, I don't even care. I don't care about calculation. Let me just give more than I have to and I'll, you know, I'll chuck it to the poor people. That mentality is um, is problematic because you're not invested in your living, in, in your life. Be invested. And if you want to give $600 more to charity after you were invested and you did the, the due diligence, knock yourself out. That's beautiful. But mm -hmm. to, to, just to live that dismissive lifestyle and say, like, I don't really care about anything. Let me just, you know, throw money at, you know, poor people on the street. This has a lot to do with something else we learned in Perkavod. And we'll probably cover that mission eventually. But there's a lot, there's a big dynamic in Judaism of it just, it doesn't just matter how much you give, but it also matters how you give. You're about learning that it's about learning the habit in this case, about getting into a particular MO. Yeah. And that, what you just, the way you articulated it, it touches upon the, the third one, the third explanation, which says uh, the habit of doing your research in this case will make you give less. But once that habit's in place, it'll protect you from the day you're tempted to give less than you have to. You know, let's say next year, I really made $110,000 and therefore tithing would be 11,000, but I still already have that dismissive attitude. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, 10,000, you know, that's what I gave last year. So once you're already in dismissiveness, yes, sometimes you could err on the side of caution, but once you're being dismissive about it, then the next time you potentially could harm someone as a result of that dismissiveness. So just to set the standard of you being a calculated person, you know, an examined person uh, is important. And then if you want to continue to give more to the poor, that's beautiful too.
Well, it sounds like you've got a good business over there. Those are good estimates. You know, maybe I should get into the <laughs> rabbi game. But I, I have to, uh, I have to adapt my uh, my examples <laughs> to the Indiana income. I feel like the you know, smaller market, uh, lower cost of living, it's just not the same. Yeah, but I really like the the first one, especially this idea of kind of better safe than sorry. You know, and and that you can push the boundaries of possibility, and then also in some cases, you know, where discomfort encroaches on what you're able to do why not push that back and maybe this is like a particularly over political example but with family in israel or people that i talk to that would just say don't go to this country or this country or this country or the west bank for example and they'd go look it's just not worth it you know and it's hard to find somebody that could be that teacher, even though they exist. I mean, talk about Googling something. You can find tons of people that are there. You can talk to people. And when I would go and I could come back and say, well, I, that boundary doesn't exist for me in, a, in the same way anymore. And I don't necessarily become a teacher for anybody. They go, you're, no, you're an idiot or whatever. That didn't, it wasn't like that. And da, da, da. But, but at least for me, that, that the possibilities of, of engagement could, could expand some. It, this is a, a funny quote to to give because it could be very much misunderstood. So take it with a grain of salt. But this is a quote from the Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud. It says in Hebrew, So uh, I hope I got that right. If not, it's paraphrasing. That was by heart. But the it means a person is required to defend, to explain everything that his eyes saw and didn't eat, which is probably metaphorical, which means like if you had an opportunity to do something and you didn't do it, whether it was a food or an adventure or a good deed or whatever, you better have a good explanation for why not. Hmm. And I feel like it's tied to this too. Yeah. 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 In other words, like when someone says, who, who said it, Plato, like living in an examined life, was that him? One of these big philosophers. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, a, it's a very Jewish or I would say observant Jewish concept to live an examined life. And usually the connotations of an examined life means like you're a downer and you're constrained and you're limited. But really an examined life just means you're examining everything. So sometimes as a result of that examination, you discover more opportunities and more courage and more potential to find things that are off the beaten track because you're that examined. So um, this mission would be another example of that, that. The additional examination doesn't make you necessarily do less things. The extra examination could also cause you to do more things that you didn't think you could. That was what Plato recorded Socrates as saying as his final words, the unexamined life is not worth living. So he, I don't think Socrates saw it as a downer. He saw it as the value of life, but doing that out loud around so many Greeks got very annoying for other people. They would stop examining. (laughs) When you stop examining, it's very annoying at parties around the Jews it, just took it and ran with it. Took it and ran with it. And, you know, there's a lot of people that are like, the Jews could drink a little more hemlock. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, maybe that's connected. <laughs> a lot of lawyer jokes. At the very least, it's responsible for lawyer jokes. Nonstop. Nonstop scrutiny. Yep. So just to summarize, Mishnah 6 was more about general inspiration, or not just general inspiration, but I guess 
directives that don't require expertise. In other words, if you find a, a homeless guy in the street that has very little expertise, very little education, but he's like mad motivating and he even has like great life wisdom, et cetera, et cetera. According to Mishnah six, according to Mishnah six's mentor, he could be your mentor. Why not? If you, if you talk to him and you tell him, you tell him your problems, even if uh, he's not going through that, but if he has a wise and objective standpoint on it, he could, he could do it. And basically anyone could be a mentor for number six. I feel like the connotations of number 16 is more speaking about rabbi or mentor uh, in a specific field of expertise where you're going to need a clear cut answer in the example given in the Perkevot of uh, not to give more than you have to in tithing or in other examples we gave as well, where like you need that expertise to find out is the, you know, is that wafer truly gluten-free or not? Or is that adventure truly to the West Bank, truly prohibited to you or not, et cetera, et cetera. But it requires a specific knowledge, whereas six is more, is more um, just as practical, but more general. And uh, just a heads up, if anyone liked Perkeavod, we probably, Adam and I will probably be hitting it fairly regularly i'd say every handful of episodes just because it's quite rich and quite approachable when living in new york city i would just meander through the city and study with young jewish men um torah so i'd be like visiting a condo and then meet, meeting someone in their school and then at a park and then at a coffee shop and just bouncing around and i loved it did it for five years and I, I called myself the spiritual prostitute. Usually when I started studying with a person, we would start with Pirkei because it's so multifaceted and no matter their style, I feel like there's always something for someone in Pirkei And then after studying them and completing the book of Pirkei I usually would be able to determine their style enough to suggest the next book to lateral to. Well, if you put your title that way, I may have to start answering one truth or dare <laughs> question differently at parties uh, but as always thank you all for tuning in we want to thank so much we're honored to have music from steph chow this intro and outro that will leave you with her first movement from c for g ballet she'll be playing july 18th and 21st in new york check out stephaniechowmusic.com and here's a little bit more from her we'll see you next week hello everybody <laughs> <laughs> what did they do behind the scenes in broadway that's a rabbi acting warm-up man i don't know there's different, <laughs> there's different laws for that yeah 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 <laughs> okay